Jonah chapter 1, starting at verse 1. Hear once again the word of our God. Now the word of the Lord came unto Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord, and went down to Joppa. And he found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare thereof, and went down into it, to go with them unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. The Lord sent out a great wind into the sea, and there was a mighty tempest in the sea, so that the ship was like to be broken. Then the mariners were afraid, and cried every man to his God, and cast forth the wares that were in the ship into the sea to lighten it of them. But Jonah was gone down into the sides of the ship, and he lay and was fast asleep. So the shipmaster came to him and said unto him, What meanest thou, O sleeper? Arise, call upon thy God, if so be that God will think upon us that we perish not. And they said every one to his fellow, Come and let us cast lots, that we may know for whose cause this evil is upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell upon Jonah. Then said they unto him, Tell us, we pray thee, for whose cause this evil is upon us? What is thine occupation? And whence comest thou? What is thy country? And of what people art thou? He said unto them, I am in Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, which hath made the sea and the dry land. Then were the men exceedingly afraid and said unto him, Why hast thou done this? For the men knew that he fled from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. Thus far the reading of God's word, and may he bless it to us this evening. The Christian is a growing person. Of course, the scriptures hold that out to us in all kinds of images. We're described, those who look to Christ by faith are described as those who are planted by a vital river, their roots going deep and their branches bearing forth fruit. They're described as a person in various stages of life, one going from a point of needing milk and immaturity to maturity and requiring meat. And in one sense, friend, a lot of those images pertain not so much to the person's external character as they do, of course, to his own spiritual growth. And part of that, of course, also involves his understanding. The Christian grows in knowledge. And a knowledge that's not merely intellectual, but a knowledge that derives from experience. And friend, as we come to this text this evening, one of the things that we have before us is instruction to that end. Instruction that would lead us to an experiential knowledge of something. And the main theme that comes out of not only this chapter, but really out of the entire book, is that of grace. With God's help, this book will encourage us to think about the grace of God in a more clear and a more biblical way. That really is the prevailing theme. As we come to the book of Jonah, what we have here is an instruction manual of sorts on how the grace of God impacts the individual and also the corporate body. But as we look at this book, we can't ignore the fact that this is perhaps one of the most well-known, if not the most well-known prophet in all scripture. 
The flannel graphs, the coloring pages, the stories abound. And predominantly, it's the prophet Jonah that is depicted there. But beloved, as we come to this text, we need to ask the question, what is really the theme here? Not, not the theme according to the storybooks. Not really the theme according to all kinds of other trivialized versions of the text. But what really is the biblical theme that derives from these four chapters? You see, friend, all kinds of answers have been given to that. And I think it's important for us to begin by asking that question. What really is the biblical understanding of the purpose of this book, the purpose of the prophet and his ministry? Well, friend, first of all, of course, we're told that Jonah perhaps was a rational, a racist nationalist. He was a man who was predominantly concerned about his own people to the point where he hated anyone who was not an Israelite. And so, in that reading, this text becomes something of a manual on how we can avoid being racist or religiously nationalist. Of course, the only difficulty with that interpretation is you don't find anything of the like in Jonah or in any of the other prophets. In fact, the predominant view of the Old Testament church was one of eager anticipation of the engrafting of the Gentiles. They were called, in one sense, to proselyte. They were called to see others come to Christ through engrafting. We don't find anywhere in this text that Jonah hated somebody because of their race, or even hated them because of necessarily their nationality. The other, of course, obvious theme that many people turn to is the idea that, well, Jonah really needed to be instructed on what the forgiveness of God really is like. He didn't really understand it. And so this book is about a man who comes to a greater understanding of the forgiveness of God. A friend, the reality is, as you come to the fourth chapter, Jonah knows quite well what the grace of God and the forgiveness of God looks like. When he is referring back to his days that we're reading of in chapter 1, he describes to us, as he, as he speaks to the Lord, that he knew full well what God would do if the Lord sent him to Nineveh. He knows that this God, for instance, as he says, is a God who is long-suffering and kind. He doesn't need instruction here on the character of the forgiveness of God. And we could even get a bit more sophisticated. Some would say, well, this is really an example of a prophet who needed to really acquiesce in his calling. And so this book is about somebody taking up the calling the Lord has put, on, put upon them. And friend, again, the reality is, while that may be a minor theme, when we come to those points of this book that interpret the entire text for us, that's not even mentioned. All of those interpretations have one basic thing in common. None of them keep this prophet in his context. None of them. And so what I want us to do this evening as we begin this text, I want us to do that just that. I want us to look at the context of Jonah. And then hopefully by and with the Lord's help, understand more how this prophet fits into the broader themes of redemption, his, redemptive history and also instructs us something in the grace of God. So first of all, friend, I want you to notice that Jonah is described for us as a prophet, the son of Amittai in verse 1. In 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25, we're told also that there Jonah was a prophet around the time of Jeroboam II, which puts him potentially between the years 750 and 850 B.C. 
Now, in that text, we're told also that Jonah is a prophet of the northern kingdom. He hails from a place by the name of Gath-Hafer. Now, Gath-Hafer is what we would consider today part of the district near Galilee. It would be one of the most western elements of that particular region. And the text tells us that that was Jonah's hometown. He was a prophet of the northern kingdom. And so he was a contemporary of the likes of Amos, uh, Micah, and Hosea, and also Isaiah. Jonah stood in that particular context for some time. We don't know precisely how long, but at least around those years and around those ministries, the Lord called Jonah to the ministry. Well, friend, with that knowledge alone, we are put on a better footing to understand what this book is about. You see, friend, this puts Jonah in a kingdom that is consistently turning its back on the Lord's prophets. Jonah is in a kingdom that, even at the time of his prophesying here, was under duress. But though afflicted, they would not repent. It was a kingdom of hypocrites. They resorted to their altars at Dan and at Bethel, and they thought all was well. When Amos, for instance, goes from Judah to go and preach the word of God to them, they say, go back to Judah because we have no need of you here. That's Jonah's hometown. Those are the people from which he comes. And also, at the time of Jonah's ministry, those prophets were predicting something very, very prominent that would come about if Israel continued in her impenitence. You see, Amos puts it to us famously. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord God, that I will send a famine in the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. And they shall wander from sea to sea, and from the north even to the east, and they shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, and shall not find it. The prophet Micah tells us that the mouths of the prophets will be stopped, silenced. God will give no answer from heaven to these errant, recalcitrant people. The prophet Hosea puts it this way. The Lord talks to his prophets and he tells them, Ephraim is joined to his idols. Let them alone. That's the backdrop for this book. Jonah stands in a kingdom in which the Lord has solemnly promised through his prophets that if they continued in their rebellion, the Lord would remove the word of God from them. Not just its efficacy, not just its power, but that God would take his prophets from this kingdom that would not hear them and transport them elsewhere. At least silence them from this land. That's the context. Now, friend, if that's the case, we need to keep in mind also some of the unique aspects of this book that may help us understand why Jonah fits in where he does. You see, Jonah, the prophet here, stands as a man who is not sent to Israel. That's significant, isn't it? The Lord has promised through his contemporaries that God would no longer send his prophets to Israel if she failed to repent. And Jonah is not sent to Israel. He's sent elsewhere. But we'll come back to that theme in a moment. What's striking about the book is, is that very element. This is the only book in the entire scriptures that do not mention once the covenant people of God. 
65 books of the Bible include at least some allusion to God's people. Not Jonah. Not even once. Now, friend, immediately you and I should be thinking that's rather conspicuous. That stands out to us. A book, no less written by a prophet of the northern kingdom, that doesn't even mention the people of Israel. We should ask a question at this stage. What really is the point to all of this? Well, that brings us to our text then this evening. Just the first three verses of chapter 1. What you have here, friend, is this idea that Jonah is a prophet. A prophet already by the time we get to the first verse. But a prophet who has been called to go elsewhere. He's been called to go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it. For their wickedness has come up before me. Uh, That phrase at the very end of verse 2 is a phrase that we should be familiar with. It's the kind of thing that God says when he looks at Sodom and Gomorrah. Their cries have gone up to him. This is the kind of thing that the Lord speaks of when he even refers back to the flood. Their wickedness came up before him. The sense of verse 2 is that God is calling Jonah to go to Nineveh because imminent judgment awaits The idea that you have throughout the scriptures is when the sins of a people come up before the Lord, it's not because his omniscience at that stage was only now learning something. No, it's far different. The idea is God is intending to act on the wickedness that he has there for him. And so the idea of chapter chapter 1, verse 2 is very simple. God tells his prophet, go to Nineveh because I am going to judge them. They're imminent, they're ripe for the judgment. What's striking about that text, friend, is that's precisely how the prophets Hosea, Micah, and Amos speak of the people of Israel. Their sins also had come up before the Lord. But where does God send the prophet? He sends him not to the north, not to the covenant people of God. He sends them. He sends him to another people. What's striking about this text, and we'll come to this in a few weeks' time, but in the fourth chapter, Jonah knows that this is not merely a command to go. There was a promise annexed to it. The promise was one of success. When you come to Jonah 4, the prophet there tells us that as he deliberates with the Lord in these moments of chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, Jonah says, I know that you sent me because you intended to save Nineveh. My friend, putting these themes together, the fact that Jonah's context tells us that God is quickly going to remove his word from the land of Israel, his covenant people, and telling us also that he is sending Jonah not to another land, the covenant people of God whose judgment was imminent, but to another people whose judgment was imminent. And also with that, the idea that God was sending Jonah with his word and also the promise of his success, not to the north, but to Nineveh, we have some very basic idea here that we can't miss. Jonah becomes a picture. For the pious Israelite, for the pious Jew, he becomes a picture of what God is going to do to the north. He is. God is going to send his prophets elsewhere. There will be a famine in the word one day. You see, beloved, if you put it this way, it becomes even clearer. If you're a pious Jew looking at this text and hearing Jonah's commission, 
What you're hearing is God is saying, if you're going to look for repentance and the power of my word, you'll need to look outside of Israel. When we come to this text, then what we have here is a sobering picture. Though Israel stands in the background in silence, as Calvin tells us, I think rightly, this is a book that's supposed to spur them up through jealousy, to repent, to show them that the Lord's word may very well depart in the future and will if they fail to repent under the ministries of Hosea, Amos, and even Jonah. Now, friend, that's the idea in the text. But what I want us to do as we look at these verses, the first three here of chapter 1, I want us to look first of all at the command that is given. The command that is given, and also the flight that Jonah takes. The command is to go to Nineveh, not to Israel, which should strike us. But then in the third verse we're told that he flies to Tarshish. The man is in flight from, he says here, the presence of the Lord. That, that, refer, that appears twice in the third verse, and once again in verse 10. He flees from the presence of the Lord. Now, of course, our God is not only omniscient, he's also omnipresent. And so we have to take this as an idiom. This is a Hebraism to describe something for us. And so most commentators say that, of course, what you have here is the idea that Jonah is fleeing the place, the general place that we refer to as the promised land that was the habitation of God and so you'll have a text or two in the Old Testament that refer to all of the land of promise as the habitation of the Lord but friend I want to direct your attention even back just a few weeks ago to what we thought about in Psalm 42 in Psalm 42 you have there the psalmist that I think we can rightly take is in the land of Jordan in the Hermonites near Mizar He's in the northernmost part of that particular land of promise. And yet, even though he's still in the land of promise, note what he says again in verses 1 and 2. My my soul thirsteth for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Though he's in the land of promise, this pious Israelite looks at himself somehow still exiled from the presence of the Lord. What do we make of that? Well, friend, it's a very simple observation, but one that we need to keep before us, especially to understand this text in all of its gravity. The presence of the Lord throughout the scriptures predominantly carries with it the idea of the temple. Predominantly carries with it the idea of corporate worship. Psalm 26, Lord, I have loved the habitation, that is the dwelling of thy house, and the place where thine honor dwelleth. Deuteronomy 12, there the Lord promised the place which the Lord your God should choose out for you of all the tribes to put his name there, even unto his habitation shall ye seek, and thither shall ye come. Psalm 132. David says, Until I find out a place for the Lord, an habitation for the mighty God of Jacob. And then again, For the Lord hath chosen Zion. He hath chosen Zion. He hath desired it for his habitation. Friend, the pious Israelite ties the presence of God in this sense, ties it integrally to the worship of the Lord. That place where God had peculiarly designated his worship to be centered, which was Jerusalem, and more particularly the temple in Jonah's day. Now what do we make of this? Well, friend, as you look at this text, 
And we see here in the third verse that the man is fleeing. And at the end of the third verse, he flees successfully from the presence of the Lord. The idea is this, that Jonah very likely was standing in the house of the Lord when he received this command. To reinforce that fact, as you look at the third verse, we're told here that Jonah goes down to Joppa. And he goes down from there from the presence of the Lord. Uh, When you were traveling north, even if you were leaving Jerusalem but traveling north, you would still describe yourself going down. Uh, And so, for instance, uh, whenever others were going south but going to Jerusalem, they were described as those going up toward Jerusalem. Or take Nebuchadnezzar, who is from the north but coming south. He's described as the one who came up into the land. Why? Because in the scriptures, when we go up to Jerusalem, we're speaking in terms of elevation. The idea is not that you're going south or north. The idea is that you are ascending topographically. And here Jonah is described as going down, even though Joppa is north, even of where he was at. So the idea is very basic. The idea is that Jonah was in the presence of the Lord, which in the Old Testament we interpret to be the ordinances of God. And there he received this command. Now, friend, as we look at this text, there are just a few observations I want us to make. First of all, the man here is surrounded then by all of the ordinances of God. The place where God's name dwelt was a place where the glory of God was typically and ritually manifest. It was where the preaching of the word of God was most prominent. The prophets would stand between the altar and the holy place and preach. And yet, even in the presence of the Lord, Jonah turns. He turns away. And though it's tempting for us to ask the question at this stage, why does he turn away? Why does he disobey this command? We'll save those comments for the fourth chapter in a few weeks' time. What I want us to notice here, friend, is that as you look at the third verse, he goes to Tarshish, or he intends to go to Tarshish. And he doesn't go to Tarshish because that's the opposite of Nineveh. I think that's perhaps how we often read this text. He goes to Tarshish, the third verse tells us, to flee from the presence of the Lord. Now what does that mean? Why is Tarshish singled out here? We don't even really know where this place is. It could be in Carthage, it could be in Spain, for all we really know. But the point is that he's going to the furthest extremities of the Mediterranean. Not to flee Nineveh, but manifestly to to flee the presence of the Lord. The habitation of God. The worship of God. And to reinforce that fact, friend, if Jonah makes this journey, he ends up far removed from any opportunity to go back to Jerusalem for any of the three high holy days. He is precluding himself from ever returning to the temple of God. He's precluding himself from ever returning to the worship of God. That's the idea behind Tarshish. Well, you see here then is a, some, some kind of progression. The man in the second verse refuses the command that's given there. And that leads him, after some deliberation, according to the fourth chapter, to decide not only is he going to go outside of the land of prominence, but he's going to the furthest extremities of the known world so that he never comes into the presence of God again. Friend, do you see the progression there? This one high-handed sin leads him to essentially desire to self-excommunicate. 
He, he, he becomes a man who desires no longer to be among the people of God. This one high-handed sin in his estimation should make him an exile from the covenant people of God and from his ordinances. And that leads us to our theme that we'll consider in just, for just a few minutes. And that is that all sin, but especially high-handed sin, drives the soul from the Lord. And I want us to consider that under two headings, just the drive itself and the direction that it takes. First of all, the drive. We're told here that Jonah flees into Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. The word there is flight. Uh, A word that describes somebody who's not just moving quickly, but moving away from something because of imminent danger. The idea is that there is something impelling Jonah to move quickly from the presence of God. And immediately, friend, you and I are supposed to recognize a radical change at this stage. Whatever his reasons for disobeying, Jonah understands that to be in the presence of God, at least in his own thinking, is to be in the presence of danger. Now, beloved, as you look at the text of Scripture, this is quite contrary to how the pious think about the presence of the Lord. I mean, just think for a moment over the texts that run through your mind as the people of old spoke about the Lord's dwelling place, his temple, his tabernacles. You see, for instance, that again in Psalm 26, there the psalmist says, I have loved the habitation of thy house. Later on, Psalm 122, verse 1, I was filled with joy and gladness when they said unto me, Go up to the house of the Lord. As you continue to read, Psalm 84, the second verse, the psalmist there says that he desires the habitations of God's house more than anything else. And yet in this third verse, you have a prophet of God who not only does not desire the presence of God any longer, but is to be afraid of, to be afraid of it, to fear it. It's a radical change, but friend, it shouldn't surprise us. The scriptures teach with one voice that known sin invites soul turmoil. In Psalm 32, you have a very graphic depiction of that. You have the man described as a man pressed, pressed to the point of almost destruction. You have a man who's dehydrated. He's under the elements and he can't get away from them. And all of that describes one very simple reality. The man had fallen into sin and until he had repented, he was pushed almost to an extremity. The pain was severe. It's the same thing that we sang in Psalm 38. The Lord's hand has pressed heavily upon the psalmist. Why? Because of sin that he had done. It produces soul turmoil. And we shouldn't be surprised, friend, then, whenever David prays in Psalm 51 that he asks for the Lord to restore to him the joy of his salvation. If sin wastes the soul in this regard, Friend, if it takes away the joy that ought to be had in the Lord, well then we're supposed to be people who are praying then that the Lord would restore that joy. It's the idea that you have in Hebrews chapter 12, where there the writer tells us that there is, even for the people of God, a kind of pain that comes with the Lord's chastening. You remember he says there that no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Sin invites, especially known sin, invites this kind of fear, this kind of turn in which the soul no longer takes delight 
in the things and in the presence of God. And that's precisely what you have in this verse. A prophet of God who can't wait to get out from under the presence of God. You see what you have here, friend, when you and I give ourselves over to sin, it's almost like we're giving our keys to a thief, our bank account details to a robber. We're saying we're quite happy if you steal our joy. We're quite happy if you take from us the rejoicing that we once had in God. When you and I turn to known sin, we're saying essentially take away from us all the joy that we had. And you see here, friend, the effect that that has on Jonah is quite profound. It drives him from everything that would reclaim him. And that brings us to our second heading and the direction to which it sends him. You see here, there's in the third verse, and really following through the first chapter, there's this emphasis on a single word. In the second verse, we're told that God says to Jonah, arise. But then as you look at the third verse and following, Jonah goes down to to Joppa. And then from there, down into the ship. And then from there, down into the sea. And then lastly, down into the belly of the whale. The point is rather profound, isn't it? It's a literary device, but it's one that really illustrates for us the entire tenor of this first chapter. Jonah is in a constant state of defection. That's where his sin is driving him. Down. 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 And you see what this does, beloved. It drives him further and further and further away from the presence of God that would otherwise be a help to him. A help to recover him. What's striking about this, friend, is as you look throughout the scriptures, when you look at how the godly look at the presence of God, and especially at the temple, Friend, you see that those ordinances that God had established were esteemed by the godly as not only glorious things, but things of incredible help. Remember how the psalmist describes it. It was in the temple, of course, that they thought of the loving kindness of God. It was in the sanctuary, Psalm 73, that the psalmist was reclaimed. They're they're producing repentance. And yet this is where sin drives Jonah. It drives him far away from those means that would otherwise reclaim him. It drives him far from the Lord. It's a striking contrast, again, friend, between what you have here and what you have expressed by the godly. Psalm 137. There the psalmist almost produces a self-imprecation. He says, woe to me, essentially, if I forget Jerusalem. If I don't love Jerusalem, then let me perish. That's really the sense of the entire psalm. And here you have God's prophet who can't wait to get out, to get out from the habitation of God's house. He longs to forget it. In fact, friend, if you put it this way, when he decides to leave Jerusalem, he decides to take up residence among heathen people who do not know the Lord. To separate himself from any possibility of returning annually to the, to the feasts that God had appointed. He precludes himself from ever coming back here again. The direction that sin, high-handed sin, leads the prophet then is away from those things that would actually help him. And beloved, what you have here then is a very basic picture that we can't miss. It's the picture that you have, of course. 
all throughout the scriptures of sinners being told that you have destroyed yourself, but in me is your help. And their response is to hew out for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. To say to the one who is life, well, to say to the one who is life, crucify him. His blood be on us and on our children. To have no desire for the recovery that God offers. An illustration for that friend in the present is a very basic one. But it's parallel to what you have in this third verse. It's that idea that you have on the street. The man, the woman caught in addiction. They continue to use their drug of choice. Even though they know that it's driving away from them all of those things that would help them. And then what's striking, friend, is you follow these ones into a place that would help them. You put them around counselors that would lead them. Uh, You put them in facilities that would protect them from bad influences. What's staggering is the counselor's job predominantly is to persuade people to stay. Their drug is driving them away from the very things that would otherwise help them. Friend, this is what sin does. It's not just drugs. This is what your sin and this is what my sin does. It never drives us to Christ. It, also, it always drives us and urges us to go away from the presence of God. To seek recourse elsewhere. To dig some other cistern and hopefully find water there. And what's striking is, as you look at this third verse, you have a prophet. A prophet of God, who because of his high-handed sin, is compelled to forsake the Lord and his house. Now that brings us, as we close, to a few points of application. First of all, friend, I want you to notice here that this is a clear picture of sin begetting sin. Because he declines to obey the command in verse 2. See how far Jonah falls, even in this third verse. It's actually quite remarkable. We focus very much on the latter portion of the book because it's so staggering to us. But, But these first three verses are quite staggering in themselves. Here's a prophet of God who comes to the point of essentially seeking to excommunicate himself from the people of God. Seeks to remove himself from any obedience to the general commands of God that were given to all of his people. This is a staggering thing that you don't find in any other prophet throughout the Old Testament. He really intends to put himself well without the reach of God's help. And you see what this does, friend. It shows us another aspect of sin. It shows us that sin begets sin. Sin begets sin. His failure to obey the first command leads him to greater and more heinous sin. Aggravated guilt growing all all along the way. But also, friend, I want you to notice here that this is also a point. A point for us to ask a very basic question. What is it that you fear more? We all know what happens next. We read the text, and you all know the story. We know that Jonah is going to be stopped in his tracks by a storm. We know that he's going to be thrown into the sea, and eventually he will be tossed onto Nineveh's shores, set before Nineveh's gates. But as we look at this text, friend, it's a striking thing. But in the third verse, we're told that Jonah, 
though he has disobeyed God, goes without any difficulty from Jerusalem to Joppa. At Joppa, after he has escaped all of those hills that held bandits and thieves, after he's escaped to Joppa without any difficulty that we are recorded here, he finds a ship that's going to Tarshish, the very place that he intends to go. And then on top of that, what's striking is he has precisely the amount of money that he needs, at least sufficient funds to pay for the fare. And then once he gets onto the ship, the weather is fair enough at the time for him to actually cast off. It seems like Jonah has an open door. Right? We're always being told that you're looking for open doors. Well, here's an open door, apparently. And you see, friend, if this is where the story ended, we would have a prophet that had refused to obey God, took up residence among heathens. And for all we know, that would be the end of it. But when you come to what's following, when you come to that storm, what do you have? Is it an expression of divine justice? Is it an expression of God's righteousness and indignation? Or friend, is it an expression of divine grace that pursued an errant prophet, stopped him in his tracks, not only to fulfill a command, but also for Jonah's good? In Jonah chapter 2, that's how Jonah looks at the whole ordeal. He sees it as the saving hand of God. And that brings us, lastly, to that point of comfort that we can draw from this. Friend, he draws his own back to himself. Jonah had no intention of ever coming back into the presence of the Lord. His high-handed sin had driven him far from ever desiring it. He decided to take up residence among heathens instead of Christians. To take up, he- to take up residence, a lifestyle among the world, not among the godly. And yet the Lord sent a storm. He pursued the prophet. And so, beloved, this text, as we said at the very beginning, is a text about divine grace. But it's probably not the kind of book that you and I often think of it to be. A kind of trivialized story about repentance that is superficial. No, friend, really, the the story, the theme of grace that we have in this text is a grace that pursues sinners. Great sinners. Unworthy sinners. And blessed be God that we have this. Not just the book, but in Christ also the reality. Amen.